0: Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Over the past several months, much has been said and written about the disruptions facing the high school class of 2021, from remote graduation ceremonies to an uncertain job market to changes in the college admissions process. But we won't be talking about the class of 2021 on this episode. Sure, they're up against some significant short-term challenges, but who I'm most concerned about is the class of 2034. That is the students who are gonna be entering kindergarten next fall. Why? Well, because many of them should have started kindergarten this year. And across the country, the enrollment in preschool and kindergarten was way down. And that could create some huge problems for students and schools for years to come. So here to talk about the recent enrollment drops and the impact they might have in schools are Jenna Conway, and Anna Shapiro. Jenna Conway is Virginia's chief school readiness officer and previously served as Louisiana's assistant superintendent for early childhood. Anna Shapiro is a postdoctoral research fellow at Ed Policy Works at the University of Virginia. There she researches the effects of early childhood programs on children with disabilities. And most relevant to today's episode, she's the recent co-author of a Brookings Institute report titled Understanding COVID-19-era Enrollment Drops Among Early Grade Public School Students. Jenna, Anna, welcome to The Report Card.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having
0: us. So there's been a ton of media attention this past year focused on the challenges of remote learning and, and COVID learning loss. And it seems like there hasn't been quite as much attention or not nearly enough attention to the sharp declines that we're seeing in enrollment around the country. Jenna, for folks who haven't really Heard about these enrollment drops? Could you give us a 30-second overview of the the problem?
1: Sure. What we're seeing is the most significant drops in enrollment in early childhood, namely preschool, kindergarten, head start, and subsidized childcare at numbers significantly higher than what you see in the upper grades. So, in Virginia, for example, we are missing thousands of kids from our preschool classrooms. Head Start classrooms and
0: our child care programs. And Jenna, just how big a drop are we talking about? Just in terms of sizes and the percentages of, of kids that we would have expected to show up in a normal year, but didn't show this year in COVID. What are you seeing in Virginia?
1: So, for example, across grades one through five, elementary school grades, you see you know, on average about a 5% drop. In sharp contrast, you see about a drop in kindergarten and a whopping 19% drop in pre-K, meaning that sort of two or three times as many kids are dropping out of these youngest grades or these earliest grades.
0: Anna, you and your colleague, Daphna Bosick, recently looked at changes in enrollment in Virginia in this paper for Brookings. So how has enrollment changed over this past year, uh, according to your examinations, and which grades are you most concerned about?
2: Yeah, so as Jenna mentioned, pre-kindergarten has seen really large drops this school year. So, you know, about 19 percent drops in pre-kindergarten enrollment, which is is pretty staggering and also very large drops in kindergarten enrollment of about 13 percent. And so, you know, I think we're particularly concerned about these grades because the opportunity to not enroll children this year was most available for these grades because they are not compulsory. So parents don't have to send their kids to pre-K, okay? And so I think that's why we were particularly concerned about these grades going into this, this
0: analysis. And Anna, you disaggregated that data by economic status and race. Uh, I'm sure you looked at it by a number of variables. So how do race and SES factor into these gaps in enrollment?
2: Yeah. So what we see is that the pre-kindergarten enrollment has dropped most significantly for children who are considered disadvantaged, according to the state's measurement of disadvantage, which is, you know, being eligible for free and reduced price lunch. Other characteristics that would make a family considered low income. And so we see that the drop in pre-kindergarten enrollment for this group is almost a third. So 32% enrollment drops for disadvantaged kids in pre-K, which is pretty staggering. We don't see huge differences by race in pre-kindergarten, but we do see that it's it's maybe a little bit more pronounced for Hispanic and Black children than for white children. So between a fifth and a quarter for Black and Hispanic children and, you know, about 17% for white children.
0: Anna, were there any other differences across districts that showed up in differential enrollment drops?
2: Yeah, so the the one thing that we were able to look at that um, we were interested in was whether or not there were differences by the type of instruction offered to families. And so we looked at enrollment drops. Um, based on whether or not the division was offering in-person instruction or remote only. And what we did see is that the enrollment drops were, were more pronounced in districts with remote only instruction, almost double for pre-K, in fact. And so that kind of suggests to us that maybe families were choosing not to enroll in remote preschool this year at higher rates than, than in-person.
0: So I'm curious as to what theory of the case you think might be driving these differences, if there's, there's one that stands out.
1: I think it's certainly a mixed bag, and we've, you know, one of the advantages of being the chief school readiness officer is that I look across the portfolio, right, private child care, Head Start, and pre-K, and across these programs, I think for different reasons, we're seeing under-enrollment. As Anna noted, it's not compulsory, which I think is important to note. On the other hand, we hear and we read about parents who are really struggling to manage taking care of small kids and working, right? It's impossible to watch a two-year-old and also have a full-time job, yet folks are for fear factor. We think we're not willing to put their kids back in group care. We saw that in particular in Head Start, which is free, which offers comprehensive services, but serves our lowest income and most vulnerable families, and we had under-enrollment there. Part of it is the virtual format. We saw that families are less likely to participate in virtual K or preschool, but I think the fear factor is really prominent or has been. It's reducing now. And then we also know that some of the families that benefit from early childhood have faced the greatest stress um, and most challenges during the pandemic.
0: I can see some listeners saying, well, this is just sort of redshirting, which is where, uh, you know, you you delay a student's entry into pre-K or, or K for a year. How would you respond to listeners who think this, this might not be that big of a deal?
1: So I think systematically, we're not prepared to hold everybody back, right? You know, the, there's just no way that like everybody has That equal opportunity to redo a year, and there are a variety of reasons for that, right? But I mean, everything from like who would go on to higher ed if we didn't graduate, could our system handle like everybody in pre K and K repeating their year while you also have you know the next birth birth cohort come in? It's hard to imagine, and you know, knowing that we're not going to kind of unilaterally hold people back, and nor would that make sense. It does mean that we leave a lot to chance. In terms of, you know, generally speaking, folks with resources have been the families who redshirt, you know, largely because um, they can afford to pay for childcare, right, which costs more than in-state tuition in Virginia and in, in for many institutions. And so I think the challenge is, unless you're going to have everybody do a redo, that you see some real disparities, and we expect some disparities as folks come back and put their child where they think they should right because of their age and it just means that kind of coming into kindergarten and first grade this year you're going to see unbelievable variation in where kids are at
2: yeah i would just add to jenna's point about you know red shirting being typically a, a behavior that is more common for more advantaged families and that you know i there isn't actually a lot of great research that red shirting benefits children in the long term and It's also, like Jenna said, most families that are choosing to redshirt for kindergarten are enrolling their children in early childhood education programs before they start kindergarten. So this isn't quite an analogous situation in that we're in a really unprecedented time where families may not be able to send their children to any sort of formal care this year. We shouldn't really expect that this is just, oh, the entire nation decided to redshirt and it will be fine. I think that we're we're in a more complicated situation.
0: Jenna, you talked about some of the challenges this could bring. And I want to zero in on that for for a minute, especially for school systems. So I was talking to my producer, Matt Rice, about whether I could use the pig and the python analogy. And and I'm going to see if I can pull it off. You know, if, if a python eats a pig, right, what does the python look like? It looks skinny until you get to the pig. And then all of a sudden, you've got this huge bump. So if we have one class that is down, you know, 15 to 20 percent and the next class is 15 to 20 percent larger. If that's the way student groups flow forward through a school system, then at some point you'll have a third grade that's a third or more larger than the second grade and and the, the fourth grade above it. So you have this sort of pig in the Python thing. And since you also said that there are groups where this decline in enrollment was, was larger, maybe up to a third, you could even see in some schools, even larger bulges in student enrollment in a given grade moving forward. This seems to me to be a huge logistical problem for schools. So Jenna, first, if I could just ask you, is that likely to materialize where students that didn't go to pre K and K this year would just enter a year later and have this, you know, sort of supersized grade moving forward?
1: I think it's highly possible. I think it will depend on the. The school district or division, the demographics and what's going on. We've been advising school divisions in Virginia to be surveying parents now as they are launching both pre K and K enrollment and to understand where parents would prefer for their children to re enter. Is that at pre K? Is that at K? You know, will they be coming into first grade? You know, as Anna noted, you know there is some choice there uh, because of the way that the compulsory laws are are set up, um, and really trying to understand what parents want for their children, what children's actual age is, um, and then you know sort of where where kids are at. We have data. In Virginia, um, from our, we, we evaluate all of the kids at the beginning and end of kindergarten, looking at literacy, math, and social skills and self regulation. And we saw some pretty significant setbacks last year, particularly in the area of literacy for both our kindergartners and first graders. And mind you, these are kids who only had a disrupted spring and summer, um, and they had a, a single year. Increase So this is five times what we've ever seen before in the number of kids who are identified at high risk of reading failure. And so you've got kind of kids with disrupted home lives, you've got real challenges, and then um, really the kind of key first thing that folks have to solve for is where do parents think kids are coming back, and then how do you handle the distribution of kids across
0: these early grades. And Anna, in your research, would you think there's any reason to believe that Virginia is an exception with these enrollment declines and potential bubbles moving forward? Or is this going to be a nationwide phenomenon that follows the pattern of COVID?
2: Yeah, I think the the overwhelming evidence so far is that Virginia is not an outlier, particularly in the kindergarten drops. I think Virginia's right on track with the rest of what we're seeing nationwide in you know, that 10 to 15% drop in kindergarten. I think one of the things that we were interested in doing for this piece, though, was focusing on pre-K because fewer states offer any sort of public pre-K, which means it's harder to, to get a handle on those drops. And so I think it's it's difficult to tell if Virginia is experiencing a more intense drop in, in public pre-K enrollment compared to other states or not, just because um, pre-K has been kind of understudied this year. I think it's of high interest to early childhood researchers and to policymakers, and we'll certainly be getting more information where we can about these pre-K drops, but you know, it's possible that Virginia has experienced a more or less intense pre-K
0: enrollment drop. So, Jenna, I have been tracking school districts on a on a separate project and have noticed in reading uh, hundreds and hundreds of district websites how many are prominently displaying their kindergarten and pre-K enrollment process is now open, trying to gather the data that you were talking about getting ready for next year. And the way that you laid out what you had seen for last year's class of kindergarten students, how they sort of had taken a hit on their preparation just from a few months being closed, suggests that you know, a lot of the folks that might have been able to defer a year or been able to not enroll might not have missed what they would have missed in a typical year and that it might have made sense to hold them back for a year and, and start anew. But I wonder what the individual districts are going to do just starting with next year to deal with what potentially could be a major surge. I mean, there's got to be hiring problems. If you have to hire more teachers, there's got to be differences in space allocation. How much are districts, which have their hands full right now, undoubtedly, anticipating what, how they're going to deal with that potential surge?
1: I think that the, most folks are starting enrollment now, right, which is a good step to start this in March and April. I'm seeing a lot of coordinated pre K and K enrollment. We've gotten questions in the last week about things like transitional kindergarten or junior kindergarten. I think school divisions being willing to think differently about how to approach these early grades. I think that the two key changes on the national landscape in terms of the federal funding, the relief dollars, right, that are kind of perfect for one-time or short-term uses to, either to hire more staff or support staff to figure out how to manage what's, what's occurring in the early grades, as well as the CDC guidance allowing for three feet with masks, you know, allows for them to make different types of plans in terms of how do you fit all of the kids and teachers. So I feel like they're in a good place on the logistics. I think the the deeper challenges we don't know, we don't know, both in terms of where kids are going to come back, but also where kids are at. And the, you're just going to see extraordinary diversity, right, in terms of what kids have experienced in the last year, you know, the academic content, the social emotional support for all of the the behaviors. And so I think our our Pre-K, K, K, and first grade. I actually think you know, first grade is going to be really tough next year. First grade educators are going to have their work cut out for them in terms of some kids who are going to come in right on track, and other kids who have going to have been you know without any form of structured structured play, structured instruction for the greater part of 18 months is going to create you know sharp differences within classrooms,
2: not only kind of across classrooms. That's going to be really challenging to manage. One thing I'd add to to this question about, you know, what individual divisions are going to be able are going to need to do is that we were able to look at the differences in the enrollment drops for pre-kindergarten and kindergarten across the school divisions in Virginia. And we saw some pretty substantial variation in, you know, some districts actually saw enrollment increases this year in pre-K and other districts saw very, very large declines and others saw slightly lower declines. So I think, you know, there the the scope of the problem across the divisions in Virginia varies, and so that also adds to the complexity of this situation. Not every division is going to be facing the same enrollment questions moving forward. It seems.
1: Yeah, the other point, and I'm not sure if you saw this, Matt, and what what you've seen in terms of the schools preparing for next year. Virginia just passed a law requiring schools to make sure that they're offering five days a week instruction. But we also expect that many divisions will offer virtual, you know, until there's a vaccine for children, that there might be some parent preference for, for virtual. Nationally, Head Start is required, a certain amount of in-person being offered, and obviously most of childcare care is, is in person. But I think that's the other million-dollar question as you prepare for next year, is um, who's going to want to come back in person? Who's going to want to come back virtually? I will say that You know, virtual preschool and virtual kindergarten do not work as well as maybe some of the older grades just due to the developmental age of kids, what kindergarten consists of. But if families don't feel safe sending kids back to Head Start or pre K or K, we could see more than expected, you know, sort of desire for virtual learning to continue. You know, and we could see that. Occurring more in certain communities um, or in certain demographics than others. And I think that's another thing that school divisions need to prepare for. We would like all kids to come back uh, to have the ability to participate in in in-person pre-K, but if that's not what parents want, we've got to prepare for that.
0: Yeah, certainly. And one would hope that Head Start works effectively to close gaps. And if there's there's a lot of virtual Head Start that may be a little less effective, I I wanted to ask about the long-term rollout of this problem. There's the early childhood questions that we have to deal with next year in Virginia and across the nation. And as Anna said, certainly some districts are going to feel the rub of that acutely and others are going to have less of a problem with it what i am thinking about and what i sort of led the show was you know this is class of 2034 and if they are a you know a super class because they have a lot more kids in them or the, the class of 2035 as the case may be um, if these are just a supersized class, is it likely that we could see that class just roll through public schools being 30% larger than the, the class before them and after them? And how big of a challenge might that be, not just next year, but for districts grappling with a, a large differential in, in, in a cohort over the next dozen years? I mean, Anna, let me ask you, is, is it plausible that enrollment could take that shape so that that's what we're looking at 10 years into the future?
2: You know, it's certainly plausible, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are efforts to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so that could come in many forms. You know, schools could choose to promote children up a grade where they wouldn't have before because they're trying to balance the class or something like that. I, I think that's a huge open question and certainly not something that people are not thinking about, but, you know, the immediate concern of, of how to to help the families and children in the next couple of years, at least from a research perspective, seems to be the the predominant concern at the moment. But, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past schools and districts to be clever about how they manage this enrollment question in the future. Um, and there are a lot of ways that that enrollments can be balanced across years that are, you know, typical and you know, things like promotion and retention, but maybe will be applied in kind of creative ways in the next 10, 12 years.
1: Yeah. The silver lining of this, Matt, is that it's going to potentially, if you've got a bulge like that, really get the system to pay attention to what's happening in those early grades. My deepest fear is that we inadvertently don't pay attention for a few years. And then three and four years from now are shocked when you have significant drops in how children are reading and making that pivot right from the the colloquial learning to read to reading to learn, you know, and at a point where, um, you know, that they, they haven't had all of the supports they needed to get to that third grade point uh, on track for success. And so in some ways, the numbers this fall and probably next fall, right, once we've all kids have the opportunity to be vaccinated, you will get the system to pay attention to sort of where kids are being placed, what parent preferences are, and how the kids are doing. and. I think that's the my, that's the only hope that we can really get these systems to pay attention to the early grades, because generally speaking, you know, we, we focus on the tested, quote unquote, tested grades, right? Third grade and above. And so, you know, maybe this enrollment crisis can get some of the focus in on these early grades. And then, you know, folks can be thinking about what do we need to do differently to both address, you know, crowded or under enrolled classrooms, but also what's actually going on with the kids and their learning and development.
0: Jenna, this idea of the bulge or the pig in the python, as I call it, uh, is there any way that we're sort of oversimplifying this picture of how those enrollment changes are going to play out?
1: Yes, I I think we are focused right now on the whether school divisions are offering in person. And that's absolutely a priority in terms of getting classrooms open, but we're paying less attention to the families who are still choosing all virtual and whether or not those family preferences are changing and how fast they're changing. Adult vaccines have rolled up very really quickly. There's talk of a more vaccinated, sort of fully vaccinated adults by this summer, but you, I'm not sure that we're doing all of the steps, taking all the steps necessary if we have you know, a school year next year where you're both running in person and still running a significant amount of virtual programming. And what that means for the following year, you know, in terms of is the virtual as effective at supporting kids learning and development as the in-person? A lot of the data from this year suggests that it might not be. And if you have vulnerable kids and families still choosing virtual for next year, It almost creates, you know, two or three bulges in the system. And it's, you know, we just have to watch the parental and family attitudes between now and September to be able to fully prepare for that.
0: So if I can repeat back what I've heard, we would sort of like to think that, yeah, by the summer, this will all be over. And if so, then you sort of have a a clean bubble in, in the pipeline to deal with. But that may be too much to ask for. And if this continues for another year in some form or fashion, or even two, then the complications that we're talking about could just be more complicated than a single bubble. Is that right?
1: Yes. A year into this, I'm struck by it was a light switch off in terms of a series of automatic school closures across the country and the ripple effects on Head Start and child care in no state and in no place has it been a light switch back on. It's been gradual, it's been select grades, and there certainly has been families who have have jumped at the opportunity to get their kids back in person and families who prefer to stay virtual um, even to this day. And so I think we're mistaken if we think it's going to be a light switch on in August or September of this year and we need to be preparing for a multi-year impact.
0: So it sounds like this could ripple out for uh, a number of years for some districts, but in the short term, districts are going to have their hands full, not only setting up for what will hopefully be able to be considered a post-COVID school year in, in large part. Anna and Jenna, in that order, what advice would you give to school leaders and district leaders, not just in Virginia, but across the country, as they try and deal with these enrollment drops this year and and perhaps take advantage of them in the years to come. Anna?
2: Well, I'll give a kind of, from the perspective of a researcher's plug, which is that I think that school districts and leaders can take this opportunity to really collect information, learn about where families were last year. When you get the families back in the building, do some real intensive data collection. What did you do last year? Where was your child enrolled? Why did you make that choice? And then, you know, moving forward, um, as Jenna mentioned, like, this is a great opportunity to really focus on K-2 through in those years before kids are starting to take standardized tests, to to pay attention to kids' reading development. are, Are they on track? And then be creative about how to kind of balance the what we expect will be wildly different COVID experiences for kids, so that we don't have kids falling behind. We don't let this year exacerbate learning gaps between groups of students. That we take this opportunity to really use the the money that's being invested to, you know, address these these challenges that COVID has has put onto families and and teachers and school systems.
1: Yeah, I agree with everything that that Anna said, and then you know I I, I hope it gives our schools and our systems and our families an opportunity to think differently about the early years. Um, we need to get that information first, but right now our, our system generally functions as a, as a bit of a conveyor belt, right? Based on birth date. And we know that each state has a different cutoff point for when K, when you're eligible for K. Um, and that there's a real drive to get your kid into K, right? Because then you don't have to pay for childcare care any, anymore. Um, but then we put kids on a, on a conveyor belt and children's learning and development in this age doesn't actually function like that. And so I think as we look at, you know, take this step back and look at what we want kids to learn and know and be able to do over this period. And we sort of think differently on how we structure classrooms, how we assign educators, how we promote and support learning and development. You know, I, I don't want this to be a binary retention promotion kind of conversation, right? Because it comes with stigma and we know that, that that doesn't work. But I think if if school divisions could use these resources, if we can provide flexibility, we being state, state education agencies, that there's a real opportunity for innovation um, that gets kids to third grade on level, but maybe does it in ways that we wouldn't traditionally have thought were, were possible.
0: Well, it's certainly gonna be a challenge in the coming years and, and maybe extending into the future. And Anna, we'll give you a chance to gather some data and maybe have you back on the report card to tell us how these things worked out. Anna, Jenna, thanks for coming on the report card. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Jenna Conway, and Anna Shapiro. We'll include a link to Anna's Brookings report in today's show notes. I also want to thank our producer, Matt Rice, who makes this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're there, please take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.